1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the Stuck in the Middle podcast. The podcast dedicated to the music, movies, and culture of Generation X. What is up Slackers and welcome to another episode of the Stuck in the Middle podcast and I am your host Jason Eck and this week's episode was actually somewhat spurred on by last week's episode and some of the research that I was doing about 1993 and looking at music and movies etc. And it was during this time when I was doing some of the research that I noticed an event that had occurred. And even though it's related to a movie that came out in 1994, there was a significant event that I remember being kind of a big deal. Now, part of the reason being is it's something that A, has a legacy, a family legacy, and Also, because it had something, it's similar to something that had occurred uh, in the past. So, what I'm talking about, and the topic for this week is none other than Mr. Brandon Lee. Now, it was on May, uh, excuse me, March 31st, 1993, while on the set of The Crow, that Brandon Lee was killed on set. So, here we are, I'm recording this just a few days prior to what would be, what will be 30 years, 30 years since his tragic passing. And to put it into context, someone said to me, and I think it was my wife, when I was talking about that I was going to do this episode. And she's like, well, how old was he? And I'm like, well, you know, he was 28. She's like, oh my gosh, for some reason I thought he was like our age or maybe a little bit younger, but he's still Gen X. So that's the whole thing. So Brandon Lee was born in 1965, so firmly a Gen Xer, and then was part of a movie that probably would have been a huge hit regardless, but it was certainly enhanced by his tragic passing. So this week's episode, all about Brandon Lee, and when we get to, you know, kind of the 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 the, the heart of the matter of what really occurred – um, I'll talk about how this was a reminder of something that had happened, I want to say, in the, uh, yeah, in the 80s, in the early 80s. All right, so, Brandon Lee. So, as you probably know, Brandon Lee was the son, his full name is Brandon Bruce Lee. Of course, his father was Bruce Lee, a legend and icon in martial arts, both actual martial arts the ability and capacity to actually do all of this stuff trained in multiple, you know, uh, different disciplines. And then ultimately, you know, had created his own, his own. And, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong because I think I always end up pronouncing it wrong. Um, but it is Jeet. Am I getting this right? Um, Hold on, let me, let me look up the pronunciation key here. Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do, which is a hybrid martial arts philosophy that draws on all different combat disciplines that is often credited with paving the way for modern mixed martial arts. So again, it's not just that he had these really great legendary movies. Well, critics would say his movies weren't great, but... They were, particularly if you were in to Hong Kong cinema, right? And someone who grew up, you know, I'm sure it was happening everywhere, but channel 38 up here in New England, you had your creature double feature on one day. And then you had, I think they called it Kung Fu Theater, which would be on. So these were both either on Saturday or Sunday or maybe both days of the weekend, whatever it was. So I remember clearly watching these Hong Kong films, usually dubbed. And still amazing to watch. And later on, when games like uh, Mortal Kombat came out, you saw some of the, um, I guess, the homage they were were playing to to some of these characters from these movies. Um, But nevertheless, what I didn't know until I started doing the research tonight is that the Lee family, it wasn't Bruce Lee who was the first person in performance. His father... So, again, I, I had no idea, but his father, Lee Hoi Chun, uh, known professionally as, well, his real name was Lee Moon Chun. My pronunciation, I'm sure, is awful. I apologize. Uh, known professionally as Lee Hoi Chen, uh, was a Chinese opera singer and film actor in Hong Kong. I had no idea that Brandon Lee was, you know, a, a third generation performer. It's really amazing. No idea about that. But also how Bruce Lee was born in San Francisco and had dual citizenship. Because he, you know, at the time it was um, British Hong Kong, right? So the, the relationship between the countries, I think, was a little bit different at the time. But nevertheless, Bruce Lee, legend, and sadly passed away. On July 20th, 1973, at the age of 32, 32 years old. Now we're going to, we'll get into, you know, Brandon in just a minute. I mentioned how young he was. The fact that Brandon didn't even make it to 30 when his father died so young is also just this whole tragic piece of it. And certainly there is, when you look through the biographies of both men, there is some superstition that that follows them both through their family, but also Chinese tradition. And even like their names, there's like certain naming taboos. Like you don't have the exact same name as like either your father or your grandfather. So it was all very, um, to Bruce Lee's mother, there were superstitions that had to be taken care of because she was concerned about a great many things. Uh, and, and part of it was his name, so, nevertheless, here we have Brandon Lee, like I said, born February 1st, 1965 in Oakland, California. Uh, Bruce's father was 25 years of age when he had him. So he wanted to be an actor like his father, and his grandfather before him. And, you know, he started doing um, you know, martial arts from a young age, as you can probably imagine. Um, and even just going on to his father's movie sets, he really got into, you know, the the whole creation of film and like being a part of that process and to have it really in his blood multi-generationally. Um, and I guess he went back and forth from Hong Kong and the United States during this time because his father would also go ahead and, you know, he was doing films in China as well as in the United States going back and forth. So, what I didn't know, and this is fascinating to me, is that so I guess Brandon used to get into some trouble. Um he would get into trouble and ultimately got him uh in a in a tough situation with school. So in nineteen eighty three, four months prior to his graduation, Lee was asked to leave school. his senior year, he was asked to leave school. Terrible, right? Uh, But he ended up getting his GED from um, Moralesta High School and then moved to New York. Now, this is the part that I was like, no kidding. He took acting lessons with the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. Now, anyone who knows like the Strasberg method and like that acting technology, not not technology, uh, um, method acting, the methodology, like that's where that comes from. So method acting is really getting in deep into the character. And for some, that means staying in character the entire time that you're making a movie. So Brandon Lee was not necessarily interested in, quote-unquote, just being this martial artist kind of action guy like his dad. He wanted to actually do some real acting, like doing theater and working his way in, in that method, which I think is really fascinating. And I also didn't know that he went to Emerson College right here, you know, a couple, yeah, 20 miles down the road in, in Boston. And many good friends of mine, you know, went to Emerson College uh, where he majored in theater and, you know, again, stage productions, etc. I just didn't know that the training, the, the, you know, we know about the martial arts training and all that, but the actual craft of acting was something that he was he was closely working on. Had no idea. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, because when he reached his apex, which is sadly, you know, the movie that he lost his life, he had really rounded out the character work. But we'll get into some of his uh, earlier movies in in just a minute, Uh, because there's one in particular that was a real real hoot, as they say. Uh, So Lee returned to Los Angeles in 1995, and he worked as a script reader, and then he was approached to do Kung Fu, the movie. Now everyone knows David Carradine was the lead in the TV show Kung Fu. And then they did the, they had like a a TV series uh, later on. I want to say that was like even late eighties, early nineties as well. But they did a, a series of movies, television movies, and they wanted Brandon Lee to be in it. I did not know that it was Bruce Lee who had been approached originally to do Kung Fu. Now, I have no idea how it ended up being David Carradine. It's fascinating, honestly. Um, just because we think like the Carradine family, it's just very curious. And uh, what they did here was they had Brandon Lee be the illegitimate son of Kwai Chang Kane, right, Who is David Carradine. And uh, Kung Fu, the movie, first aired February 1st, 1986. Lee said he felt there was some justice in being cast for this role in his first feature since the TV show's pilot had been conceived for his father. So then his next big deal was a Hong Kong crime thriller, uh, Ronnie Yu's Legacy of Rage. Now, Legacy of Rage has some amazing dialogue, likely due to, you know, some translation and going back and forth. But if I'm remembering correctly, Legacy of Rage has this amazing like death scene where I think I think it's Legacy of Rage where he delivers the line. No, no, wait, I'll get back to that. There's this line from a movie that is just it's it's so ridiculous that it's great. But anyway, um, Legacy of Rage. I think he ends up going to prison in that one because he like comes up against like um, some gangsters, and uh, you know, I guess they have like a cocaine trade. And he is—he's just a regular guy with a job and a girlfriend. He has two jobs so he can support his girlfriend. His dream of owning a motorcycle, like that, is such an eighties like. Actioner from Hong Kong. All this dude wants is a motorcycle. It's all he wants. And then he finds himself going up against some, some bad guys. Now there is a big bad in here. Oh my gosh. What is his name? Um, You'll know him. He was like in um, blood sport that like super jacked dude, like huge. I never remember his name.
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is that Bolo
0: Young? Oh, I think it is. Hold on a I got to look at him when he's young. Cause the picture that comes up. Um, yeah. Bolo Young. Oh my gosh. I just saw a picture of him from like 10 years ago. And currently he's 76. who he was like 66 years old. And he's so thin. But yeah, he was like jacked to the gills. Um, he was known for movies like Tiger Claws, uh, and, uh, Chong Li and Bloodsport, like I said, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but he's in it and they have this interaction at a restaurant that is just so good. Now, part of the reason that it's so good is in large part because of Brandon Lee. So the whole thing, the whole like gimmick of Bruce Lee was the dude was like always kind of like chill, right? And um, he always came, seemed to keep his cool. And it's like, okay, we're we're gonna fight, and that's and that's fine and all, but he tended to keep, at least in my opinion, a a kind of a a passive face, right? He could be stern, right? But has always seemed very much in control, right? And not necessarily full of, as uh, you know, the movie is called legacy of rage. So he's this guy who is working at a restaurant. This is Brandon Lee, right? And, And his character is Brandon, Brandon Ma. And he's working in the restaurant and a bunch of drinks fall over Bolo Young. And, they have like this moment of like looking at each other and he, he's wanting to be apologetic, right? That's, you know, he's working there. He's saying, I'm so sorry. But Bo Young punches him, bam, right in the stomach, right? And he just has this expression of like, you son of a bitch. And like his fist starts to ball up, like he's ready to fight. But he's just like this. He's got like this kind of like bowl cut, you know, similar to his dad kind of thing. But he just has this expression on his face of not passive at all. Like, I'm going to fight you. Yeah, you're big. You're jacked. You got all these dudes that are with you. But I'm ready to fight right now. And it was like the split second. And then his boss comes over. He's like, hey, why don't you go ahead? Take it easy, bro. Take it easy. He's like, there are a lot to handle. Just chill out. He's like, okay, okay. And uh, he goes and he delivers all the drinks. He, he, you know, brings the drinks back to the table, the drinks that had spilled initially and Bola Young takes the beer and he just throws it in his face, right in Brandon's face. And again, the look of just you mother trucker and the guy gets up in his face and Brandon like just punches him. Boom. Super hard. And the guy goes tumbling backwards, surprised, that this seemingly meek little guy who's working at this restaurant just punched him probably harder than he'd been hit in a really long time. And Brandon goes, Hey, that was one for me. One for you. We're even, we're good, right? But of course, this is a movie. Uh, There has to be some antagonism. There has to be another fight scene and they go outside and Brandon Lee kicks the crap out of all of them. The police come, he goes to jail where then there is more conflict there. His Legacy of Rage. So anyway, that was Legacy of Rage. Uh, then he did another spin-off of Kung Fu, Kung Fu the Next Generation. Um, let's see. And then uh he had a lead role in What's in a Name an episode of Ohara, starring Pat Morita. I don't remember the show. And he played a villain this time, the son of a Yakuza, Jeff Amada, who was working as a stunt coordinator. No wait. Jeff. Owen, oh that sentence. I read it wrong. He betrayed the main villain, the son of a Yakuza. Jeff Mata, who worked as a stunt coordinator, said that Lee was recommended not to do the role due to the nature of his character, because basically they didn't want him to ever play a villain. But he's like, dude, I want to play a, real, uh, a villain. This is awesome. Like, why wouldn't I want to do that? Because he said he wanted to expand his acting range and took the role. Um, oh, gosh, I never saw a laser mission. Um, laser mission was filmed in Nambia. Really? Yeah. It was filmed in Zambia. Um, yeah, it's a country in, you know, Southern part of Africa. Um, I'm not sure who the distribution company was. And then, uh, he began to do training again. Stan Lee, And uh, Marvel CEO Margaret Loesch had approached him um, thinking that he should play the role of Shang-Chi. Now, interestingly enough, we just had a Shang-Chi movie just recently come out. Um, So this has been a project that's been in the works for a very long time from Marvel. So now he was approached to do the biopic for his father. And he's like, I I don't want to do that. I really have no interest in trying to be my dad. It just seems kind of weird. And he also made the comment that wouldn't it be strange for me to be acting in a romance as my father when the one that he is romancing is my mother. I mean, that absolutely makes sense why he wouldn't want to do it. He also said um, he wouldn't want to do it because he wouldn't survive if they treated his father like a God. He said his father was after all, a man who had a profound destiny, but he was not a God. He was a man who had a temper, a lot of anger who found mediocrity offensive. Sometimes he was rather merciless. Now that is really interesting, you know, because he was still little when, You know, his dad died, but obviously he got to see that side of his father, most likely on the on the set. Very curious. So now here's where we we get to some of the amazing dialogue. Okay, This is amazing because I. I can't imagine who did casting on this. I could go and look it up because I just want to say like absolute. Props to whoever decided to put these guys together. So showdown in little Tokyo starring Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee, and they are, it's a buddy cop movie and they're investigating the Yakuza. Now it got bad reviews, all of it, but this is where, (laughs) so first of all, (coughs) You you have to understand that, like when you first meet our our characters, Dolph Lundgren, he's got his biker jacket on, looks straight out of the Punisher, right? Except he's, you know, blonde Dolph Lundgren. And what's really so cool about Dolph Lundgren, this is just my opinion, is that he was automatically, I think, thought to be Drago, emotionless, and all that. That guy, since then, has done nothing but chew up scenery. Everything from, you know, this movie, Showdown in Little Tokyo. um, Oh, gosh. What's the one with... um, Oh, my gosh. uh, Universal Soldier, is that it? Yeah, Universal Soldier with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, where he is just so over the top. Well, he is just chewing up the scenery here as well. And what's great is he's sitting at this small Japanese restaurant, right? And... He's just chilling and he's drinking his tea and he's got his teacup in his hand and the bad guys come in. The accuser come in and they want to extort this little old lady who's just running a restaurant and saying, Oh, we want a percentage, right? This whole thing. So of course, Dolph Lundgren, he gets up and he's freaking huge, right? The guy's like six, four, six, five. He's massive. Got a leather jacket and he's still, he's sipping his tea. And one of the guys comes at him and he does, Just kind of a wrist lock. Just takes him over. Okay. Hey, look, man, I haven't had my breakfast yet. I get cranky when I don't have my breakfast. Like those kind of lines, like a little bit of humor, like dry humor. And then it turns into a full out fight. At the same time, Brandon Lee, his character, is coming to meet the guy who is going to be his new partner. Because they're going to investigate the Yakuza together. Right? Oh, gosh, what is his character's name? Um, So Chris Kenner is Dolph Lundgren and Johnny Murata, which is Brandon Lee. And (coughs) sorry, they tried to do it as this kind of um, reversal of characters, right? So Chris Kenner, Dolph Lundgren's character, Is an American who was raised in Japan, okay, which explains the various different outfits that this guy wears throughout the movie. So, again, this is Dolph Lundgren. So, if you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. And his new partner is an American, but he's of partial Japanese descent, and he doesn't really care much about Japanese culture, right? So you have the American who only appreciates Japanese culture, and then you have a partially Japanese guy who's just like America's the whole thing, right? But they both are into martial arts. Oh my gosh, it says it right here. The two are assigned to LA's Little Tokyo where they break up some criminal activity in a Japanese restaurant. Oh my gosh, it is ridiculous because another thing of like 80s and 90s, you know, cinema is the bad guys always have like you know, Mac 10s Right, or little uzi's, right? Ridiculous! Just, just the amount of hardware. So, the two of them, because they they've never met before, Dolph Lundgren unfortunately assumes that this guy showing up must be with the bad guys, right? So they start fighting because it also looks like he's the aggressor because he's this big, huge guy. So they're both looking at the situation from the outside, looking in, thinking that hey, this big, tall, blonde guy is abusing these people here in, you know, little Tokyo. And then he's like, who's this kid in a suit who's showing up a suit, not unlike these guys who are holding up this lady for extortion money. And they fight bad guys. Get away. They're like, Oh my gosh. But even like how he introduces himself because they both figure it out before they even say anything, because they both take out their guns and their badges and Dolph Lundgren goes, go ahead, say it. I'm your new partner. It was like, duh. Right. So they all fight, you know? So here's the line that I'm talking about. That's just so ridiculous. So he's fighting this guy and he's reading him. His rights. This is, this is Johnny Murata. Now, mind you at this time, I don't even know. Like it's what Dolph Lundgren is wearing, but he's got a, a rising sun bandana around his head. And he's wearing like some kind of um, um, ornate gi type thing, like blue with like big shoulders. Like it's like a ninja outfit. And he's got a machine gun, like full auto, just mowing guys down. But like terribly, like missing terribly, missing like a stormtrooper, like ridiculous, right? So um, it's just such a weird thing. Um they're fighting. So at the same time, Brandon Lee is having a, a more conventional fight, right? Cause it's the kind of movie that it is. And, you know, he's fighting this bad guy and, um, doing a lot of like knee bars and like, you know, um, you know, shooting in the leg, like all that kind of stuff. So a lot of ground game happening. So very realistic because all fights end up on the ground, unless you're shooting at each other, but you're going to end up on the ground and they do, and they're fighting and he's reading him. His rights was, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney, right? He's doing that whole thing. And as, as they're fighting, the guy goes over the railing because, you know, Brandon does like this, this beautiful like heel hook. Bam. Kicks him in the head. Guy goes over the railing, falls into this vat. And I think it might be a distillery. But anyway, he yeah, it's a brewery. Yeah. So there he's up on the top and he goes, you have the right to be Dead. And he like throws his lighter and the whole place like just goes up in in flames. But you have the right to be dead. I mean
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Such a ridiculous line, but he says it with such conviction. Like, absolute conviction. It's just, it's ridiculously good. It's so of its time and of its era, but the two of them together, it's like freaking magic. So, honestly, like I said, if you haven't seen it, Go check it out. It's worth your while, if nothing else, than for the kitsch of it all. And I just think those are some of the best, most fun movies to watch. Because it ain't meant to be a thinker. This was not ever conceived as a vehicle for an Oscar win. This is, we're going to get Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee in a movie. And they just let them go to town. And just do what they do best. Now, it's interesting... Is that it was through these few films, particularly the ones that were being distributed by American studios, that people were looking at, I guess, you you know, I think they call it Q, Q curating, right? That this guy is testing well. He has this screen presence. Clearly, he can act, even though he's not necessarily been given the greatest scripts to work with, but he's going all in. He's going all in. So this is where... He then gets, oh, the next one was Rapid Fire. Yeah, I think Rapid Fire was an American-funded, yeah, 20th Century Fox, where he is fully the lead. Like, no buddy cop thing. It's not a Hong Kong film. It is, like, legit, straight-up American action film. Now, what's great is that the villain in this is Powers Booth. So anyone who doesn't know who Powers Booth is you know he started out on uh oh my gosh did he start on bonanza let's see i think i made him way older than he actually is yeah he's not that old um let's see filmography oh you know what i was thinking i was thinking of parnell roberts for a moment that's that's what i that's uh, bonanza so let's see 77 He started Goodbye Girl, but he kills it in Red Dawn, Extreme Prejudice, uh, Tombstone, probably my favorite, like, top five movies of all time. It's certainly my favorite Western of all time is Tombstone, and he's got Curly Bill in that. Um, He was in Con Air, U-Turn, Sin City. Oh, my gosh, he's the senator in that. yeah, so good. Like, so good. And a perfect villain. He just plays it so well. So well. And he's the bad guy in this. Gosh, I gotta go see... I gotta see Rapid Fire unarmed and extremely dangerous. Well, of course he's unarmed. He doesn't need weapons. Um, Let's see. Um, Wait a minute. Is Powers Booth not the enemy in this? Um... Let's see. Um, oh wow, he's not a bad guy in this, really. Yeah, Lieutenant Mace Ryan. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. He's so rarely a good guy. Maybe I've never seen Rapid Fire. Huh. Well, anyway, now I'm definitely go. Going to check it out. um, Because he is never the good guy. I mean, maybe he is, and I'm just remember not remembering it properly. But, yeah, Rapid Fire, 1992 action film directed by Dwight H. Little, starring Brandon Lee, Powers Booth, and Nick Mancuso. So that brings us to... Actually, let me see something about Rapid Fire real quick. Um... Ah, okay. So I I remember vaguely reading something about this. So the reception for Rapid Fire. So Stephen Hunter of the Baltimore Sun wrote that the film's fast pace, which he compared to video games, leaves Lee unable to show his charisma. And although he called the film a disaster, Gene Siskel called Lee likable and appealing. While writing the Los Angeles Times, Kevin Thomas described the film as, Better than enter the dragon and a star-making role for Lee, and then finally, Stephen Holden of the New York Times said, "The film exploits the death of Lee's father, martial arts actor Bruce Lee, to make his character seem more sympathetic." What? What am I missing there? Um. Very interesting. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. Turned off from politics after witnessing the death of his father at Tiananmen Square in China, Los Angeles art student Jake Lowe is lured to a party of Chinese pro-democracy activists. What? So so his character lost his father. So the guy who wants to be taken seriously as an actor, even while doing actioners, action films, martial arts flicks, he can't play a character of someone who's lost his father Are you serious? So whoever that reviewer is for the New York times thinking exploitative because his character also happened to lose his father is um, that's the least credible thing I've, I've read about a film recently. What a stupid thing to say. So anyway, so now he's been considered a leading man. Now he is considered not, you know, a huge box office star, but he's done. Okay. He's had some films that have debuted in the top 10. Good stuff. Low-budget movies that are making decent money at the box office. All the things that you need. So then he landed the role in Alex Prius The Crow, an adaption of a comic book by the same name. So, of course, anyone who hasn't seen it, it's the story of Eric Draven, a musician, a rock musician, who was raised from the dead, by a supernatural crow to avenge his own death, as well as the rape and murder of his fiance by a dangerous gang in a city. Uh, Shelly is the name of the fiance. So here's where the whole meat comes from, unfortunately for the, the Brandon Lee story and legacy. So, so much was built up. I think it already was kind of being built up that, you know, this film was in development and then it was shooting. And I think people looked at it was a big deal for Brandon Lee that he had this, I mean, it's $23 million budget, right? And he was attached as the guy, you know? So who played Shelly in this? Um, Sophia Shinas, a Greek-Canadian singer, songwriter, and actress and director best known for her role as Eric Draven's murdered fiancé Shelley in The Crow. So, I want to talk about the movie itself for a moment. So, there's one scene, and I, I went back and I watched it, and it still holds up to me. So, you have um, a group of bad guys, Right. And, oh, gosh, who's the big bad's name? Um, Top Dollar, played by Michael Wincott, also chewing up scenery. Okay? Awesome. You got names like Top Dollar, uh, T-Bird, Skank, Tintin, Fun Boy, Grange, Gideon, right? So 90s. So, so 90s gang, right? And he shows up at their place. And they're all sitting around this long table and one of the guys in particular that's part of this gang was one of the guys who had killed him and raped and killed Shelly. And he's just picking them off one by one, right? And he walks into the room, and he's like, gentlemen, and he just did this one thing that has stuck with me literally from the first moment I saw the movie, and he very calmly Walks up to the table, and in one fell swoop, he vaults the table and comes down in, and I know you're not supposed to say this anymore. It's just easier to, to say, but he comes down from the air, Indian style, so smoothly, crisscross applesauce. I can't say that. I'm a grown man, crisscross applesauce. But anyway, all in one move. It was so graceful and so powerful, and, but he lands without a sound, just smoothly. And you think about the body control that it takes just on one, one arm vaulting up and then coming down and sitting that way. It's just so cool. Now he does, he slides his foot, you know, a little bit, you know, looking back at it, but I just was like, this guy is so cool. And of course you're seeing the movie. He's already gone. You're like, this guy would have been a massive star. I mean, it was, it was such People say, well, was it a really good movie? Yes, particularly for its time. It was very dark, very gritty, killer soundtrack, killer soundtrack, without a doubt. Yes, very 90s, very moody, very dark, very goth, very atmospheric. Um, I mean, it's like even darker than Gotham. I want to say that it actually takes place in – does it take place in Detroit? I think that it does. But it is relentless, and it it doesn't necessarily I mean, I guess it has a okay, so they had to change the ending. so let's let's get into it because it was hoped that this would be a such a success that it would lead to a franchise because there was a whole series of comics, there were other stories to tell. And many considered that this would be this real breakout vehicle for Brandon Lee. So they had to change it where at the end of the movie, he dies, which is anticipated. And, uh, you know, he is reunited with Shelly's spirit and they return to the afterlife, his revenge now complete. Now, that was not the original ending. The original ending of the movie, he would have beaten all the bad guys. He would have won. And now he remains this avenging spirit. There's your sequels, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the thing about Brandon Lee's death. And this is what I said at the top of the show. So I remember clearly I was about 10 years old and some of you will go, I think I know where you're going with this. And there was an actor uh, on a TV show. Let's see here. Show called cover up. You might remember. And the, lead male character was played by John Eric Hexum. Young, good looking kid jacked everything like you're looking for in like an 80s heartthrob, right? 26 years old. And the cast and crew were filming the seventh episode. And one of the scenes filmed that day called for Hexum's character to load cartridges into a 44 Magnum handgun so he was provided with a functional gun and blanks. When the scene did not play as director wanted it for the master shot, there was a delay in filming. Hexam became restless and impatient during the delay and began playing around to lighten the mood. He had unloaded all but one blank round, spun it, and simulating Russian roulette, he put the revolver to his right temple and pulled the trigger, unaware of the danger. The explosive effect of the muzzle blast caused enough blunt force trauma to fracture a quarter sized piece of his skull and propel them into his brain, causing massive hemorrhaging. He underwent five hours of surgery, but ultimately died age 26, six days later. Okay. Now you can say, well, that's not exactly the same thing, but it is. And, and the reason that it's similar and reminiscent is, is because even when you're dealing with prop weaponry, what they're doing is they're using blanks to make it, I mean, it does everything that you would want a gun to do. So here we are. Um, Like I said, March 31st, 93. Lee was filming a scene where his character Eric is shot after witnessing the beating and rape of his fiance. See, they, they filmed it in reverse order. After Michael Massey's character Fun Boy fires a .44 Magnum Smith & Wesson 629 revolver at Lee as he walks into the room. The scene filmed two weeks before Lee's had called for the same gun to be shown in close-up. Revolvers often use dummy cartridges fitted with bullets, but no powder or primer during close-ups as they look more realistic than blank rounds, which have no bullet. Instead of purchasing commercial dummy cartridges, the film's prop crew hampered by time and money constraints, created their own by pulling the bullets from live rounds, dumping the powder charge, but not the primer, then reinserting the bullets. Witnesses reported that two weeks before Lee's death, they saw an unsupervised actor pulling the trigger on the gun while it was loaded with the powderless but primed round. Having not removed the primer, the primer could detonate with enough energy to launch a bullet and lodge it in the barrel. So that's what happened. Okay. In the fatal scene, which called for the revolver to be actually fired at Lee from a distance of 12 to 15 feet. So again, you're you're dealing with what you think are fully blanks. The dummy charges were exchanged for blank rounds, which feature a live powder charge and primer, but no bullet, thus allowing the gun to be fired without the risk of an actual projectile. But as the production company had sent the firearm specialist home early, why? Why did you, why? To to cut budget? Responsibility for the guns was given to a prop assistant who was unaware of the rule for inspecting all firearms before and after any handling. Therefore, the barrel was not checked for obstructions when the time came to load it with the blank rounds. Since the bullet from the dummy round had become trapped in the barrel. This caused the forty-four Magnum bullet to be fired out of the barrel with virtually the same force as if the gun had been loaded with a live round and it struck Lee in the abdomen, mortally wounding him. So, when I say the reminiscence, it's it's not completely safe... And certainly we know what happened on the set of that Alec Baldwin film, right? Where they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't do what they were supposed to do from props or the firearm specialist to make sure that you're using the right kind of equipment. Now, for, the, for you know, the Hexum kid, he didn't know better. But I think a part of this whole thing is also Training. Actors need to be trained and understand what they're handling. You know what I mean? Anyone who, who has seen, I haven't seen the new John Wick. I want to go see it. It's in the movie theater. Um, if you've seen the training that Halle Berry and Keanu Reeves did for John Wick 2 and look at the work that they put in and their understanding and the, the thorough understanding and training they were given on how to handle firearms, I think is exceptionally important. You know, we we live in a world already where firearms are are talked about. And, of course, we've had, you know, recent events. So the last thing you want to do is then to exacerbate the issue by being in some make-believe world where you're not properly handling weaponry. So here we are, Brandon Lee, in what is going to be ultimately a a star-making turn, is killed because they were short on money, Money and time, and you didn't have the right people doing the right job. It was negligence, in my opinion, on behalf of the film, the film crew. And, um, you know, I don't know if there was ever any lawsuit or insurance or anything like that. But what's interesting is, um, How, how? Let's see here. Um, Obar later remarked that losing Lee was like losing his fiance all over again, and he regretted ever writing the comic in the first place. So I guess this was based on something that the writer had actually experienced. James Obar's comic of the same name. Before entering the Marines, Obar's fiance Beverly had been killed by a drunk driver. So he used that as part of the story that he told for the crow to make himself, you know, an opportunity for catharsis through writing. So Brandon Lee, twenty-eight years old, did not make it even to thirty. His father dead at thirty-two, a a tragic legacy. You know, his sister Shannon has, you know, kept the. The family name alive and well and and you know taking care of the name. Um Yeah, it's just that soundtrack, we listen to that all the time. Like so good. Um that Stone Temple Pilots tune on there. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it. Um absolute banger, absolute banger. Um but the Bruce Lee Foundation, which Shannon I believe still runs. Um, You know, it's a nonprofit and it's a not for profit organization that motivates individuals around the world to become the best versions of themselves through our three pillars of youth, mental wellness, one family and legacy. The Bruce Lee Foundation encourages people to strive for honest self-expression in alignment with mind, body and spirit and in harmony with one another. I mean, what a what a beautiful way to look at it. So cool. Um, but I'm just going to very quickly pull up that soundtrack here. Because I still want to focus on the good stuff, the fun stuff, and not just, you know, the tragedy of it all. That soundtrack, where is it? Um, You figured that would be like right here. Well, of course they do. Uh, medical band, Ice Nine Kills, created a song based on The Crow called A Great Mistake. By the way, Ice Nine Kills, they are, for lack of a – excuse the pun. They are killing it right now. They are absolutely killing it, like so good. And I first heard of them, oddly enough, through a cover they did of um, Someone Like You by Adele. And just such a kick-ass version. Uh, Let's see. So the Crow soundtrack. It says here. Okay. Track listing. Burn by The Cure. Golgotha Tenement Blues. Machines of Loving Grace. Big Empty by Stone Temple Pilots. That's the right. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, Dead Souls, a Joy Division cover by Nine Inch Nails. Darkness, Rage Against the Machine. Color Me Once, The Violent Femmes. Ghost Rider, which is suicide cover by the Rollins Band. Milk Toast by Helmet, that's a good one. The Badge, which is a Poison Idea cover. One of my old bands, like the lead singer, love Poison Idea. Um, Slip Slide Melting for Love Not Lisa. After the Flesh, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Snake Driver by the Jesus and Mary Chain, Time Baby 3 by Medicine, and It Can't Rain All the Time by Jane Syberry. It was just a hell of a record, and uh, U.S. Billboard 200, number one. Now, I personally will tell you I love soundtracks because it gives you kind of the sense of the film when you're listening to it, particularly when it's, you know, Paste right because putting the songs in the right order and the right flow is important for any album. But then when you're getting all these different artists, it's, it's an art form all into itself to do a fantastic soundtrack, either orchestral score or using actual, you know, contemporary music. Really great one. I suggest you go listen to it, but that brings us to the end of this episode And Brandon Lee, now I plan on doing an episode somewhere down the road of the actual Crow itself. Because that movie came out, like I said, in 1993. And maybe I'll even do a watch along on that one. I have a couple of people who I think might enjoy watching that with me. There really is a tragedy. And here we are 30 years later. And it's hard to imagine what could have been what could have been for Brandon Lee. So hopefully I I left us off with the, you know, the soundtrack and nothing too bleak. You know, the Bruce Lee foundation is still doing good work. I think the family name and legacy is in good hands. And I think it will always be a part of pop culture. Certainly the name and the family have been, you know, so many different homages in all different types of media uh, it's permeated in hip hop. Uh, everything from Kill Bill, which I, you know, there's some criticism, you know, of of Bruce Lee's portrayal in uh, Once Upon a, Time Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I, I think that Quentin Tarantino loved those films and certainly wanted to be, I think, faithful to what we've kind of heard somewhat, even from Brandon Lee's assessment of his father being maybe a little bit, merciless and, and cruel, particularly his view on maybe a typical stunt man versus a peer in martial arts or stunt coordinators that are close to him. It's all very interesting. It's all, it's all really, really cool. Um, whether it's Bruce Lee stuff or Brandon Lee stuff, I just wish that Brandon Lee could have had a longer career and really was able to enjoy the fruits of, of the crow and and what that film was able to accomplish. It's, I think it holds up, but that's just me. I can watch stuff from the nineties and be like, yeah, that's still awesome. So I would check it out. If you need something to watch this weekend, watch the crow or you save it for Halloween because that's when the movie actually takes place. Devil's night. First, there was one year and then the one year anniversary uh, when the crow returns, when Eric Graven returns to exact vengeance on those who killed him. So please tell me, what do you think about Brandon Lee? What did you think about the crow? And what did you think about this episode? And what would you like to maybe see or hear in future episodes? You can go ahead and email me at stuckinthemiddlepod at yahoo.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at stuckpodx. Head on over to the Facebook page, Stuck in the Middle, of Gen X podcast. Please like, comment, share, leave five-star reviews, and most importantly, please subscribe to the podcast. So until next time, later, slackers.